Thanks to Quip for supporting Industry Focus. Join over 3 million healthy mouths and get Quip today, starting at $25. And if you go to getquip.com slash fool right now, you'll get your first refill free. Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market every day. Today is Tuesday, November 26th, and we're talking jeans. I'm your host, Nick Seipel, and today I'm joined by Molly Fool contributor Asit Sharma via Skype. How's it going, Asit? Well, it's going very well, and I'm very excited to talk denim with you today, Nick. Yeah, just for our listeners to note, we're pre-recording this episode on October 29th, so some facts may have changed between now and then. But yeah, really excited to talk about denim and jeans. I mean, when you think about fashion, there's really not a lot of articles of clothing or pieces of fashion that really have the staying power that jeans have, and they've really, you know, in the past year, really picked up uh, some attention of Wall Street. So. You know, jeans were invented in the 1870s by Levi Strauss and Jacob W. Davis. And since then, as I said, they've become a fixture in American fashion, really ramping up in popularity in the 1950s after James Dean wore them in Rebel Without a Cause. Uh, but they aren't just fashion, they're big business. And as I mentioned, over the past year, they've really caught Wall Street's eye. Levi Strauss uh, IPO'd earlier this year. We've seen spinoffs of Contour Brands, who's the maker of Wrangler and Lee Jeans, uh, away from VF Corp. And we've seen a spinoff of Madewell from J. Crew. Asit, just off the top, why is there all this interest from Wall Street in jeans all of a sudden? <laughs> it's an intriguing question, isn't it? You know, as the market has uh, gradually crested ever since the Great Recession, um, the IPO market has become more and more intense. And you see these very valuable unicorns, uh, private companies with billion dollar valuations going public, and some of them doing quite well. Um, so, why are Wall Street investors still interested in jeans. I mean, there are a few reasons. One is uh, these companies have extremely dependable growth. You mentioned um, Levi Strauss. That company has been around, you know, as you said, since um, I think it started in the 1850s. Jeans were only invented 20 years later. Uh, so this is sort of a recurring revenue stream, and Wall Street loves nothing more than a recurring, recurring revenue stream. If you think about software as a service stocks, those are really hot now, but those are essentially sort of the same things. They're selling the same products over and over again, and people are re-upping every year, those software subscriptions. This is that, but in denim. Um, also, these companies, uh, Levi's and Contra Brands, the first two that we'll talk about today, they throw off a pretty interesting dividend, a lucrative dividend, each of them. We'll get into the specifics uh, a bit later. The third thing that I wanted to mention is that if you are an IPO investor, let's say you're a hedge fund or a pension fund or a retail investor, uh, you've seen in the last year that for every hot issue, there's an issue that inevitably burns a hole through your pocket. Uh, look at Uber, look at uh, WeWork, which actually pulled its IPO because it couldn't come to market. Um, so, Uber might be the more specific and better example, but for every unicorn that does well, uh, you're sort of rolling the dice as to whether these companies with their new business models will uh, make money. So this is a great way if you invest regularly in IPOs to hedge those bets and and uh, put money in issue in an issue that might not uh, storm out of the gate, but over the years will return you um, you know a handsome bit of money. And the last thing I want to mention is we rarely get a chance to invest in iconic brands in the consumer goods world. So between these first two companies that we're talking about, Levi's and Contour Brands, you've got the Levi's brand, you've got Dockers, you've got Lee Jeans, you've got Wrangler. So these are 
brands that have been around for decades, much beloved, extremely strong, uh, great customer loyalty. And we look for that in the IPO market. Hey, what is this company uh, bringing in terms of brand potential and brand value? So when you get a chance to put some money behind these in, in the public sphere, that's very a persuasive reason to invest. Yeah, I mean, as we mentioned, you know, it's very rare you see a brand that has the type of staying power uh, that Levi's had. And when we were when we were doing some preparation for this show, you kind of compared it to Coke a little bit in that both of these companies have been around since the late 1800s. Both of these companies are in a market that has really been durable over you know since that entire period of time, and have had steady above GDP growth that has been able to continue over time, which is one of the things that. You know, we've mentioned it is really attractive to Wall Street is this kind of annuity-like business model that's durable over time. Do you want to kind of break that down a little bit, Asit? Sure. So when Contour Brands uh, actually made its registration statement, uh, provided details before it spun off from um, VF Corp, which holds brands like Timberlake and Vans uh, Shoes, we got some good data on their management's estimate of the market and. Per their estimate, Jeans is a $100 billion market globally. And uh, this company itself holds about a 3% market share. The interesting thing is that Contour Brands sees that this market has been growing steadily at a compounded annual growth rate, or CAGR, for about 4% for the longest time. And it's projected to speed up a little bit over the next few years to a 5% CAGR. And um, this is something, Nick, you know, as, as we were batting around this topic, you you pointed out that hey, you know that actually exceeds if you if you look at global gross domestic product or GDP growth over time, that's somewhere around two percent, three percent at best. So you have an industry here which is steadily growing in excess of two to three percent of gross domestic product a year, and what that means is that it's it's staying slightly ahead. Consumers have that much more to spend, and they consistently buy these products. Again, what does Wall Street love? They love an annuity business, a business that you can depend on those returns every year, year in and year out. A lot of the sophisticated um, valuation models behind stocks that we love, be it Amazon.com, Microsoft, um, in the consumer goods sphere, uh, I'll throw out McDonald's in addition to Coke. Most of the big institutions that keep pouring money into these stocks are thinking about future cash flows and discounting them back to present value. So Wall Street loves nothing more than a company in which you can predict the certainty of those cash flows going forward. And that's what's one of the things that's so interesting uh, to me. Just to talk a little bit more um, about these two first two companies, Contour Brands and Levi's, um, Contour Brands has roughly 3% market share of that close to $100 billion. Uh, so it's got about $2.7 billion in annual sales. And you know, extrapolating those numbers to Levi's and its own revenues, which are about 5.6 billion a year, it's got 5% market share. So that's not really a lot. Now I know you add that up; it's 8% of the total global market. And yes, these two companies are dominant, but they've got a long runway to actually grab even more market share. Um, and just briefly, Madewell, which is um, has put out for its own IPO, uh, not really an IPO, sorry, to spin off. From uh, its parent company, which is J. Crew, 
this company, the total company has 2.4 billion uh, in annual revenue. Madewell itself has about 615 million dollars in annual revenue. So it's much smaller than either of these other two companies um, by that criterion. It's got about six tenths of one percent of mark total global market share, and it also has a very long runway to grow. Yeah, another thing on, on the genes growing faster than GDP, I think. It can, they kind of stand out as a piece of apparel relative to the rest of the market. I, there just aren't that many fashion trends that per, that persist over you know a, a, the better part of a century, and the market really likes predictability, as you mentioned in these annuity type businesses. And when you have a, a track record of in excess of GDP growth over decades and decades that you can extrapolate into the future, in addition to a very strong brand like Levi's or as we mentioned Wrangler and Lee, uh, there's a little a lot of opportunities there. You mentioned Madewell. That's a little bit of a different animal there. A lot faster revenue growth. A lot younger company. Actually has a little bit higher profit margin, so a 10% net profit margin around the kind of mid sixes for for the other two. And their model is much. Uh, more growth focus versus those dividend models of those other companies. Um, actually, and they're less genes focused than the other companies as well. A little over half of their revenue uh, is attributable to items like T-shirts, footwear, leather goods, quote unquote, everything you wear with jeans uh, is what they describe that as. One other place where uh, Madewell is differentiated uh, from Contour brands and from Levi's is in its distribution model. So a lot of folks, when they think about buying Levi's or buying Wranglers, they think about going to your local Macy's or your J.C. Penney's to buy these products, and that you know there is some concern about those slowing down. Well, Madewell, as a younger, newer, more millennial-focused brand, has this. Uh, much more direct to consumer focus. We've seen uh, the perfect example of that uh, recently has been Warby Parker, a company that really is focused on direct to consumer, been able to build out from there. Eighty-seven uh, percent of Madewell's sales are direct to consumer, and so that, and forty percent of their sales are are e-commerce. So really, a different approach from those other guys. Asset, can you talk about what kind of advantages that direct to consumer model gives to Madewell, and what flexibility maybe it gives to the company? Yeah. So. If you think about how Levi's um, and also Contour brands, uh, their big brands being Lee and Wrangler, how they've grown, they've grown through the mass market over decades, uh, and this is, you know, from the time that malls were big in American culture. So you'd go to the mall and buy your jeans, uh, and still they have a wide, what we call wholesale presence, and wholesale really means they are selling their jeans through retail channels. So when you hear us say wholesale, we're really talking about at the end of the day, those jeans are being sold in someone else's shop. And that is a sort of tough model over time as the retail landscape evolves. And you know, we listeners, we you've heard us talk umpteen times on uh, this show about how you know malls are dying out, the re- retail landscape is changing. The advantage you have in a direct-to-consumer channel. And what this means for Madewell, it's got about 135 stores. That, that's a rough number. Nick, maybe you can correct me a little later, but let's say it's close enough for Jazz. Um, with these stores and with its e-commerce sales, as Nick told you, they reach most. Um, this cut, this year, I think they're tracking closer to 90% um, you know, of their sales through these direct channels. And what advantage that gives to them is it's a tremendous builder of loyalty. When a customer is coming directly into your store or they're buying online from you, you have a great opportunity to enroll them in your loyalty program. And about 60% of the direct sales um, that Madewell generates end up uh, ends up snagging loyalty customers. And these customers are 
responsible for about 67% eventually of all direct channel sales. So people who uh, visit a store or buy online one time, about two-thirds of those are buying again and signing up for the loyalty program. So you really can capture that customer versus Levi's, which although it's it's a really hugely strong brand presence it still does compete on price and you know just this is anecdotal but you know for me when i was a kid in the 70s i don't want to say what part of the 70s cuz that'll maybe age me too much but you had to come to school in levi's jeans Wrangler was like the off-brand and nick we were talking yesterday Wrangler by the time you were in school i think was a little more cool but you know there were times where my mom uh, would take me to the mall, and and she'd be like, you know, we can't afford all Levi's this year, so this other brand is on sale, and I'm going to buy some of that. So when you're not in uh, a preponderance of direct channels, you are vulnerable to this type of you know pricing. So that's the main thing that you get um, out of this. And I would also say that um, this sort of millennial-friendly aspect of Madewell that Nick talks about, it's a very persuasive way to go about the business and it's led to this uh, very fast revenue growth. Uh, they have a design team which actually crowdsources um, some of the designs with about 4,000 customers who have done 125,000 product reviews. So it's a very hip and online brand, both in the way that they sell, but in the way that they interact with their customers. Yeah, Madewell, very controlled distribution with that, you know, 130 so stores. You compare that to Levi's, their products are in 50,000 retail locations, 3,000 dedicated stores and shops within shops. So, obviously, much more exposure to the broad retail market. As a result of that, their America's revenue declined 3% in this most recent quarter. The Levi's management has called it, quote unquote, a melting iceberg. So, something where, you know, this is a big market, but slowly over time, uh, this business is slowing down a little bit, at least in the US. And we'll talk about international maybe a little bit later and what opportunities there might be there. But as a result of that, also, one other thing to mention with Levi's too is that it's a little bit more premium product on uh, in the in the the jeans market, so maybe a little bit more exposed to the department store uh, market. But as a result uh, of some of these concerns with their traditional distribution outlets, we've seen both Levi's and to a lesser extent Contour brands try to push into the direct to consumer market as well. 35% of Levi's sales are direct to consumer. Contour brands, 11%. Uh, can you talk a little bit about what Levi's and Contour brands are trying to do to build out this direct-to-consumer model and what opportunities it gives to them as retail is changing? So, for Levi's, it's more of a process of building out their own branded stores. Um, when they do that, and, and these are mostly the shops within shops that you mentioned. So, when they do that, obviously, it's more like the Madewell model, where they have a chance to interact on a more close basis with the consumer. Um, for contour brands, it's interesting because, as you mentioned, they only have 11% direct-to-consumer sales, and they don't have a uh, retail presence of their own. Now, um, this company happens to be headquartered in Greensboro, North Carolina, which is a stone's throw from where I live in Raleigh. And um, they're testing out a prototype uh, retail store in Greensboro near their headquarters. And I wouldn't be surprised to see them roll out more of this in the future because, you know, with, with their very uh, well-known brands, they certainly have an opportunity to, um, in, in higher or more affluent markets, in sort of outdoor uh, retail centers that are becoming very popular, they have 
obviously an opportunity to exploit that. But I also think that um, you know as they expand geographically, which is the second way to counter uh, this type of U.S. Uh, mall-based declining uh, sales quandary, uh, I think that Contour Brands has a huge opportunity to not only expand its uh, direct business, but in general to sort of grow into uh, a new business. The parent VF Corp never really helped uh, this company grow to its full potential. That's not the the fault of VF Corp because they have a gazillion brands. But when you're under uh, sort of a centralized control, you only have so many resources that you can use to further your own growth. Um, One of the markets, of course, they're looking at is China. And I was pretty surprised to learn that Contour Brands had never been sold in China. And now that they've spun off in May from VF Corp, they uh, will have that Wrangler brand in China um, in early 2020. They're shooting for January, which is both an indirect and a direct uh, e-commerce opportunity for them. So lots of potential there for both companies to uh, wend away from the small base decline. Again, it's more e-commerce and it's also geographical expansion because outside of the US, in developing countries, malls are all the rage. And that's really actually a place you want to be selling within. Quip, makers of the Quip electric toothbrush, wants you to know the one single discovery that matters most for your dental care. It's simply this, that if you have good habits, you're good. That means brushing for two minutes, twice a day, and flossing regularly. Quip makes that simple. Their electric toothbrush has sensitive sonic vibrations with a built-in timer and 30-second pulses to guide a full and even clean. Plus, Quip delivers free brush heads, floss, and toothpaste refills every three months with free shipping. If you're like me and can never seem to remember when it's time to replace your toothbrush, it's a perfect reminder when you get your new brush head in the mail every few months. Join over 3 million healthy mouths and get Quip today, starting at $25. And if you go to getquip.com slash fool right now, you'll get your first refill free. That's your first refill free at getquip.com slash fool. Spelled out, that's G-E-T-Q-U-I-P dot com slash fool. Quip, the good habits company. Yeah, and that that ties in, you know, right right to the next thing I wanted to talk about, which is the opportunities for international expansion. You mentioned uh, how uh, Contour Brands uh, management ha- has called out that they really kind of felt hamstrung by the relationship with VF Corp, held back their ability to invest in product innovation as well as international expansion. You mentioned pushing into China um, there. When you look at the opportunity outside of the U.S. Uh, for these companies. Madewell doesn't really have much of a presence there, but they mentioned a number of times throughout their S1 that they they would like to continue to expand more internationally. But when you look at the opportunity for these companies to to expand overseas and just the way genes resonate outside of the U.S., how big of an opportunity is this for for these companies? It's tremendous. So Contour Brands is interesting because um, it's actually got a supply chain that stretches across North America and into Mexico. And so you know when we think about overseas for Contour Brands. That might mean also just expanding, um, you know, southward to a very big market. Let's talk about Coca-Cola again. That it's sort of a counterintuitive uh, idea, but Coke has a big customer in Mexico, in the Mexican consumer, and has spent a lot of resources over decades. Um, and it's worked out for them because their costs to supply to Mexico are a lot cheaper than you know supplying overseas. Of course, they've built over time their distribution within these markets. But the same principle can apply to Contour Brands, and I think that for them, that's a tremendous opportunity. 
their global exposure is just 22% right now. So obviously, the the um, opportunity for them is probably greater than it is for Levi's. Levi's has about 55% of revenue in the U.S., 29%, and 16% in Asia. But interestingly, 29% uh, Europe. For, uh, it's 29% in Europe and 16% in Asia. But for those of you who are not geographically challenged like myself, you'll notice, well, what about, hey, um, the Middle East and Africa? <laughs> Levi's includes those two big geographical region, regions within its Asia account. So 16% is actually um, just a green field for them to plow in the future. And with developing economies, not just in, in China, but if you look at uh, you know economies such as Indonesia, Vietnam, um, Japan, looking in Africa, South Africa, Kenya, um, and you know moving on into uh, the Middle East, uh, those are very wealthy economies. They have a lot of ground, as I talked about at the outside of the show, to capture another few percentage points of market share. And for Levi's, what does another percentage point of market share mean? It means about a billion bucks of, of revenue each year. Um, one thing that uh, I think, Nick, you were talking about yesterday is that when we were uh, kicking around uh, our, our preparation for this show, um, that the company's seen really global uh, direct-to-consumer growth um, that's hit the double digits for a while. So, not only is Levi's expanding outside the U.S., but it's doing it more in the direct channel. That channel is growing faster than the overall business. So, you sort of get a two-for-one there in Levi's potential. Sure. I mean, we've mentioned that you know America's revenue was slowing slightly, but when you look at overseas, Europe growing double-digit rate, Asia near a double-digit rate. You mentioned the direct-to-consumer market growing. Uh, appears to be a strong opportunity for them there, uh, and you know. An opportunity to push that direct channel uh, higher margin business as well. Uh, another opportunity for these companies to take share and to grow their business is, is to push out uh, to new customers. And for Levi and Contour brands, I, I think that means expanding more into the female channel. Madewell, kind of the other way, need to uh, need to push into men's products. Uh, when it comes to when it comes to Levi's, what moves are they making to try to attract more women to their brand and to expand their market in that in that fashion? So, um, Levi's is um, doing two things. One, they are emphasizing that they've got a core discipline in men's uh, wear. So, it's sort of like owing your, both your strength and your vulnerability. Uh, men's wear and men's bottoms each account for 60% of revenue. So, while Levi's doesn't disclose what that final number is, that is, how much are men's jeans the real driver of the business, you can sort of cross-section those two numbers and see it's a pretty big percentage. Um, and so, they're emphasizing women's fashions, and that actually moves into accessories. Um, not to say that men don't have as great fashion sense as women, but we don't tend to accessorize uh, at the pace that women do, and Levi's has been very savvy in um, growing that. And um, also, they have moved one other area to sort of diversify away from this men's um, jeans core of their business is to look at tops as being a slice of their market. So, um, they are heavy into t-shirts, um, jackets with different substrates, different cloths. And um, they're also cyclically uh, pushing the jean jacket. And I wanted to stop right here and ask you, Nick, have you ever owned a jean jacket in your life before? Because my personal theory is they come way into fashion and then you wouldn't want to be seen dead with one. 
Yeah, so I have owned a jean jacket maybe back when, you know, middle school days. I, you know, I never got into the full-on hipster thing. If I if I was leaning into the to the to the hipster culture, that that's more of the more of the jean jacket scene uh, uh, these days. But what about you, Asset? When's the last time you put one of those on? So uh, when I was a teenager, so this is again, I won't tell what part of the '80s, but in the '80s, my sister bought me a jean uh, jacket, and I think I was um, uh, recently talking on this show about. Uh, my sister being a fashion maven and myself not having much of a sense of fashion. So, uh, you know, she, she got me a jean jacket and she's like, you got to wear this every day. And I think it was, might've been 10 years later, I met up with her. We had both moved to different cities and I was wearing that jacket. And she's like, what are you, what are you wearing? I said, but you bought this for me. Doesn't this look great? No, it, it was much out of fashion. Um, so I think that um, Levi's is aware that, the jean jacket is a tremendous seller, and it's a lead-in for other articles of clothing. But um, if they had their druthers, and if Contour Brands had its druthers, um, the de- denim jacket would be in fashion all the time. Sure. But what a great piece of uh, wear when it's when it's hot, and something you wouldn't be caught dead in when it when it's not. <laughs> Exactly. And just to throw, throw a couple of numbers at you, uh, Levi's calls out 17 consecutive quarters of expansion in women's clothing, 11 consecutive quarters of double-digit growth in women's lines. Uh, you compare Levi's having a 69%, a very nice 69% of their uh, of their revenue coming from bottoms. You compare that to, to Madewell, as we mentioned earlier, 52% of their revenue coming from tops uh, or coming from t-shirts and those sorts of things. Uh, kind of maybe draws the line into into that gender dynamic between those companies. Obviously, a big opportunity there for Levi's. Contour Brands also doing some product innovation there uh, when it comes to to women's products. Uh, they've, they've announced this Lee Jeans Body Optics line, which uses materials research, imaging technology, and insights from cognitive science uh, to you know use fabrics that are more visually appealing uh, and you know attractive for wearers. Uh, so that's a really big opportunity for both of these companies. Another area that uh, a couple of these companies are pushing into is this ESG recycling, taking care of the environment uh, uh, push. Madewell, in particular, has touted that at the very front page uh, of their S1. They tout 100, 000, I mean, 600,000 jeans recycled, turned into 100 million square feet of housing insulation. Asset, you know, with these companies pushing in towards this ESG sustainability uh, uh, type focus, what Opportunity does that create to kind of drive customers, particularly the younger generation, uh, to their brand? It's a it's a sort of a double edged sword. So I used to think that hey, you know, it's it's wide open opportunity, um, but you know, there's a cost to every um, initiative that you undertake, and we don't really always understand the economics. Um, and I'll give you one example. So. Um, uh, Contour Brands has developed a really cool, innovative strategy for their jeans in that they're using foam now as a dye instead of using a water-based dye, and that saves them you know, a tremendous amount of waste. Uh, it uses zero water and is supposed to uh, reduce the waste by 60%. Um, but we really don't see those uh, play out in the financials until years have passed. But these companies are erring on the side 
of the younger consumer, that this is extremely important uh, to building lifetime value of a customer who's maybe in their 20s is a socially conscious millennial, um, you know, maybe versus a baby, baby boomer. Not to say that baby boomers aren't uh, sustainably oriented and environmentally conscious, but um, as a spectrum of consumer, they've been shown in studies to be a little less um, concerned about the provenance of um, the the uh, items that they use, and a little bit less attuned to these uh, socially conscious issues. So, long term, it's a win. I mean, it's a win for the environment. It's a win for these companies in the sense that if they pick up a customer in their twenties and prove to them that. Um, the customer can feel good about buying the product. They'll have that customer for decades. Um, you know, and it's a win for their bottom line eventually. But you know, I think from now on, when we when we, when we talk about ESG issues uh, with consumer goods companies, we should recognize that there's a near-term cost any time that you adjust a supply chain to. Um, you know, make it more sustainable. There's a near-term cost on the financials now. This is just a personal preference. I'm all for that. I don't mind if a company that I invest in uh, takes near-term hits in uh, terms of gross margin or ultimate profit margin. If I know that eventually they're going to do better by the environment, I'm you know maybe a little bit um, on the more sustainable part of the spectrum in in terms of where I've evolved. Um, However, I'm also you know business person and. I hope to be, over time, a savvy investor. I'm still on that journey. I want a company to be able to do that in a fashion that also um, is easy on the bottom line. So, there, there is a trade-off there. I want to give more of an honest answer than what used to be an enthusiastic response to a question like that, Nick, which was like, yeah, you know, it's great on all fronts. Um, everything has a cost, but in the end, I think these companies will win by grabbing consumers for a long, long time. Sure, and, and and linking that in, linking the sustainability to driving sales. I think Madewell has an interesting approach there. Uh, only twelve percent of their of their denim sales to shoppers are through their recycling program. But if you do participate in their recycling program, they'll give customers a twenty twenty dollar discount on a new pair of jeans when they recycle a used pair. So you can see psychologically, you, know, you feel way better about yourself going to buy new clothes, even if they're kind of expensive clothes, if you can say, hey, I'm taking care of the environment by recycling my old clothes, plus I get a $20 discount. You can see how that could maybe build a little bit of loyalty, as well as maybe drive uh, more trips to the store than may have happened otherwise. Uh, the last thing I want to talk about here when it comes to jeans, and this is more uh, you know, an assessment of the broader market. I talked about off the top of the show what's been really remarkable uh, about jeans as a fashion item is that they've been able to persist, you know, over a number of decades and really be a staple uh, of what people wear. And we're seeing in recent years this rise of this athleisure trend. Really started a few years ago when yoga pants started started becoming just a phenomenon. I remember when I was in college, you really first started to see them pop up, and then it went from the college age folks all the way up to to the grandmas and the ma- mamas and all that stuff. And uh, now it's just it's a phenomenon. Lululemon, this company that you know maybe nobody had ever heard of a decade ago, and now a massive player in consumer goods. Uh, but with this growth of athleisure, do you think there's any risk that, as you know, more athleisure clothing becomes part of our day-to-day wear, that maybe some market share could be taken away from jeans, and that in excess of GDP growth may come back, you know, towards GDP? 
there's some risk in it. So, just some thumbnail numbers. It's really hard to get a sense of how big the athleisure market is. I've seen estimates that peg it at $83 billion annually to $200 billion annually. So, by some estimates, it's a little bit smaller than the jeans market, and by some estimates, it's twice as big. But you have to remember that that also includes um, things like socks and sports bras and accessories that go uh, with this whole athleisure uh, concept. Um, it's not just leg- leggings and yoga pants, which are the primary competitors to bottoms in, in the denim market, i.e. jeans. Um, so there is a potential for this to shave a few points off of the market for jeans. I personally think that the two can coexist. Uh, if the athleisure uh, market continues to grow, and, and some estimates peg this, uh, actually a firm I respect called Technavio, they peg that this market is going to grow at a 7% CAGR. So uh, we talked about the jeans market speeding up to a 5% compounded annual growth rate. So this is two percentage points above that uh, for the next five years is what uh, Technavio estimates. If it does continue to grow like this, sure, it's going to shave some of the top of the market off for jeans. But jeans have never really been a workplace uh, wear, um, and athleisure has some potential to go and replace some workplace wear. I think jeans have always been more about uh, school, uh, school wear and also evening wear. So when you're going out with friends or you're relaxing at home or um, you know just uh, being yourself, you're going to throw on a pair of jeans. So I believe that um, this, plus this thing that uh, I've, I've personally witnessed in my travels to different part of the world, parts of the world, jeans are aspirational. So in developing economies, the, sort of the uniform of the middle class is a pair of jeans and a branded shirt. Whether that has a European logo on it, um, most of the time it's got an American logo on it. I don't know, off the top of my head, Polo, Ralph Lauren. Uh, that is sort of a uniform all around the world that says, hey, I've made it. Uh, I'm no longer in the, the lowest socioeconomic rung. I've, I've, I've climbed up to this other rung here. So I think jeans will continue outside of the U.S. to uh, really play this role in people's fashion choices. Now, in the U.S., I think that's where we may see a little more deterioration uh, in jeans sales. And, and maybe, Nick, that's why we see the, the wholesale channel in the U.S. suffering a bit. Maybe it's not just the malls uh, and the death of malls that are causing Contour Brands and Levi's to see a little bit of loss of business, but it's this creeping uh, growth and popularity of athleisure. Now, having said that, a lot of the athleisure trend is confined to women. Men, as yet, aren't going en masse in yoga pants um, outside, but they could potentially in the future. I'll get your opinion on that. So, Bottom line on your question, yeah, I think that the uh, ultimate market in jeans may uh, be a bit compromised, but I don't see uh, this athleisure trend wiping out jeans, and I think the two will continue to coexist in people's closets. Yeah, Asad, I think... I tend to agree with you. I, I don't know that uh, that yoga pants will be adopted uh, by, by the by the male demographic, but I think some level of athleisure is going to uh, and is already beginning to uh, penetrate uh, the male side of the market as well. You mentioned the workplace, and and I think that's a really important thing to uh, to to call out because I think we've seen a push really across the board at many workplaces uh, to move toward more casual wear. I know you know we're we're a very casual workplace here at the Full. We see folks wearing jeans to work all the time. I, I think. The segment of the market that that is really at risk 
uh, relative to athleisure and maybe even relative to jeans as well is the formal wear side of the market, the Joseph A. Banks, uh, those sorts of things. I think there's just, you know, in 20 years from now, there's going to be a lot fewer people wearing a suit and tie to work than there are today. And I think that opens up market share not only for athleisure, uh, but for Levi's and, and all these other denim brands as well. These are folks that, uh, you know, casual uh, clothing that folks are really comfortable wearing, uh, you know, on their day to day going out and about evening wear, as you mentioned, Asset. Um, so, so I, I, do, I do think there, there's some chance that athleisure maybe tempers the growth of jeans, but I think the real loser here is formal wear. Yes. Yeah, so, 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 last question, just kind of, uh, kind of going away. When you look at these three companies, Levi's, Contour Brands, and Madewell, which one are you most excited about as an investor? I'm most excited about Contour Brands, and just uh, I, I told you I would talk about dividends. So, really briefly, um, Contour Brands, when it gave its pitch to investors. It actually came out and said, we're going to grow our annual revenue 1% to 2% a year. That's not a lot. But they also said, we're going to throw out a dividend, which will yield 5%. And I actually wrote an article some time ago during the summer. Uh, the company stock fell down to 27 bucks a share. It opened closer to 39 um, when it spun off in May of this year. And I wrote an article saying, hey, you, know, you, you can pick this stock up today and get somewhere between a 7% to 10% yield on cost if you, if you purchase the shares. They've come back up to that $39 level. But I'm very intrigued. Um, I'm a dividend investor. And for those of you out there who are seeking a stable source of income in a, in a not you know, um, hypercharged in selling environment, this is a very interesting company because, again, they really never had the chance on their own to see, well, what can we do with these brands? They were always under that VF Corp umbrella. Having said that, I'm intrigued by Levi's. You know that Levi's is going to be around a lot longer than you or I will be. <laughs> they, the, Levi's Jeans as a brand is, is going to be here likely another 100 years. Um, they have a dividend, which they just raised, which is now yielding 3.5%. So, if you're a dividend investor, maybe you split it between these two companies. But props to Madewell, because it is a niche company. Again, it's a fraction of the size of either of the first two, but they've got a handle on this millennial consumer. They are going to grow at a lot faster pace. They'll be a little bit higher risk. Uh, but you can't ignore that one either. So, I don't want it to make it seem that I don't like Levi's as an investment, and, and I don't think that Madewell is going to be interesting. We'll have to see it go public, actually, and, and see a few quarters of performance and analyze those financials. But it's an intriguing aspect. But for my money today, as a dividend investor, um, and I encourage listeners who are income-seeking investors, check out Contour Brands. And you, Nick, I'm very curious where you land on these three uh, companies. Yeah, I think for me, it's going to be Levi's. Just the power of the brand, the staying power. It's a brand that's recognized the world over. When I think of you know prestige relative to Wrangler and Lee, it's just it's just a little bit of a notch above. I think when we talked about when we were preparing for 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 this show, you know, I kind of said Levi's one A, you know, Wrangler and Lee one B, the Contour brands brands. I, again, I, I really respect what Madewell has done. I think their growth has been really impressive, and maybe it's my bias, but just because I'm not super familiar with the brand, and you know, I've never purchased anything from them. But I, I have a perception, and maybe this is an unfair perception, that they may be a little bit more sensitive to fluctuations in, in you know what's fashionable from time to time. I like that Levi's has this multi-decade track record of really being that one A in the jeans market that I think they can they can persist over time. Really like that dividend, though, from Contour Brands Asset. Absolutely. 
Well, Asit, always enjoy having you on the show, and we'll look forward to having you on again sometime soon. Thanks, as always, for coming on. It's been a pleasure. Appreciate it. As always, people on the program may own companies discussed on the show, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against the stocks discussed, so don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear. Thanks to Austin Morgan for his work behind the glass. For Asit Sharma, I'm Nick Seipel. Thanks for listening, and Fool on! Fool on!